Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern. I'm Viveka Morris. For most of our planet's history, geologic change was steered by inanimate forces. Then modern humans arrived, triggering a new epoch now known as the Anthropocene. Coined in the 1980s by biologist Eugene Sturmer and popularized in 2000 by Nobel Prize-winning chemist Paul Crutzen, the word marks the transformation of the biosphere over the past 250 years, a change wrought not by solar radiation, tectonic activity, or volcanoes, but by human beings. We are the only known animal to have caused climate change, desertification, ozone depletion, ocean acidification, pollution, and species extinctions. Until relatively recently, technologies and ways of life that enabled us to transfigure the earth in these ways were understood as expressions of our inherent superiority. Today, the Anthropocene is increasingly seen not as a mark of human exceptionalism, but as an ecological catastrophe that threatens not only non-human lives, but also our own continued existence. In their book, Love and the Anthropocene, novelist Bonnie Nadzem and our guest, Philosopher Dale Jameson invites us to imagine a not-too-distant future in which our technologies have continued to transform the face of the planet. In this world, the phenomenon Elizabeth Colbert has called the sixth extinction is long underway. Like the cities of today, rivers, lakes, forests, oceans, and fields are curated and managed by humans. Other animals remain only insofar as their existence contributes to human enjoyment. Most of them are bioengineered. What, Jameson and Nadzim ask, will become of us in this world in which nature is almost entirely an artifact? What will it do, what has it done already, to our relationships with one another and with ourselves? Dale Jameson is a leading environmental philosopher and professor of environmental studies and philosophy at NYU, where he serves as affiliated professor of law and leads the university's Animal Studies Initiative. He is also the founding director of the NYU Center for Environmental and Animal Protection. In addition to co-authoring Love in the Anthropocene, he is the author of Reason in a Dark Time, Why the Struggle to Stop Climate Change Failed and What It Means for Our Future, Ethics and the Environment, an Introduction, and Morality's Progress, Essays on Humans, Other Animals, and the Rest of Nature. He has edited or co-edited nine books, most recently Reflecting on Nature, Readings in Environmental Philosophy, and serves on the editorial boards of several journals, including the Journal of Applied Animal Welfare Science and the Journal of Applied Philosophy. Dr. Jameson, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you, Viveka and Lindsay. In your book, Love and the Anthropocene, which is, which is a book of fiction, you include two essays at the start and at the end, um, which are about love. Um, and you talk about, in particular, a line that I loved, the 1958 song by the teddy bears, To Know Him is to Love Him. Um, and I should say first to any listeners, this is very true of you yourself as a philosopher in your writing. Um, but you write a passage. And I'm just going to read a couple sentences from that to get us started um, and to ask you a question about it, which is the passage is this. And what is true of songs is, of course, true of mountains, deserts, and nature itself, as well as the people and animals with whom we share the earth. To know them is to love them, but not everyone who experiences them will know them, and not everyone who knows them will really love them. There is an intellectual kind of knowing we're all familiar with, and there is a deep knowing that entails bodily experience and empathy. And so we're curious, Professor Jameson, how over the course of your life you've come to know animals and why knowing animals matters. Well, I think I've been very fortunate in many ways because I grew up with a lot of animals. My my parents were migrants to California from the Midwest and were not in that way very far removed from the farm or at least from a world in which animals were part of everyday life. So we always had all kinds of animals around the house except for cats. My father did not like cats, but we had dogs, we had fish, you know, we had kind of salamanders, we had all kinds of of random things. And then also my parents, um, you know, we didn't do a lot of things as a, as a family and we didn't take a lot of trips together as a family, but my, my parents always had a membership in the San Diego zoo. I grew up in San Diego. So we spent a lot of time at the zoo. So 
I think I was quite fortunate in being around animals from a from a very early age. Now my attitudes towards animals, you know, changed radically. Um, you know, not just generally, but on a day to day basis, and in terms of my attitude towards particular animals, just like with people, you come to see them in a different light sometimes after certain kinds of experiences. So it wasn't, you know, some some simple, you know sort of pilgrim's progress from one place into heavenly light or anything like that. It was just more a matter of being around animals as, as, as part of daily life. And therefore, there's kind of a field of experience that was possible. How would you characterize that transformation? Well, well, well let me just say this. I grew up in a religious family and I went to religious boarding schools. And so even though I was around animals, probably in a very unthinking way, I accepted the conventional views of human superiority, not because I had any reasons or any arguments or, or anything like that. And those ideas really broke down as a product of my later education, really when I was in uh, college, but especially in graduate school. Um, I became very influenced by Darwin. I did my graduate work in philosophy of language. I had an incredibly powerful dissertation supervisor who had a, a view at the time that was an extremely unfashionable and weird view for a philosopher to have. I mean, basically said, look, if you want to do philosophy of language, what you've got to understand is that language is just human linguistic behavior. And so you've got to see it against the background of animal behavior generally. Go read this. And then he sort of steered me in the direction of people like Conrad Lorenz and um, Nico Tinbergen, and, and people like that. And I think that's sort of when these kind of the general assessment of where humans fit into the animal world began to change for me in a really more theoretical way. Oh, it's so interesting because typically language is understood as the rampart with what divides us from them. But it sounds like for you, it was part of the portal into this field. Yeah, that's right. And you're also right that that's quite unusual. The appeal to language is you know, really stood in for the appeal to the soul in much of our philosophical tradition. But I might also add that uh, it, I mean, it also brings out how strangely interesting my mentor Paul Ziff was in seeing things, you know, sort of through the other end of the telescope from what most uh, prominent philosophers of language, uh, how they viewed things. So did that lead you into reading about animal communication. You've written extensively on animal cognition and the various scientific approaches to that, which we're hoping to ask you about too. Yeah. So really my first sort of academic interest in animals was really uh, about animal behavior and animal communication. And, and, and in those days, people didn't like calling it cognition but it was really reading the classical ethologists. Now, I was also fortunate because I became vegetarian fairly early, uh, but for reasons that had nothing to do with anything except that my then-girlfriend was vegetarian, and, um, and I grew up without any conception of what good food was like. And so the first good food I really ever had <laughs> in my life was vegetarian food. So, you know, so I was already vegetarian. I was already interested in animal behavior, uh, and that's when I first ran into work in animal ethics. And so I, you know, I was fortunate in the sense that I didn't have much to protect, um, you know, when I started reading those, those texts by Peter Singer and, and Tom Reagan, who was a colleague of mine in the first job I had at North Carolina State University. And for listeners who aren't familiar with their work, Peter Singer and Tom Reagan are two of the leading thinkers on animal ethics, and they've kind of shaped... Um, the debates around animal personhood and whether or not we should expand our sphere of moral concern to include animals. Can you just characterize the differences in their views? So from a philosophical point of view, their views could not be more different. So Singer is really an inheritor of the classical utilitarian tradition of which probably the most well-known figure is John, John Stuart Mill. And the utilitarian tradition basically has the view that what we should do is maximize the good, even if that involves using individuals as means. And so Singer gets to his animal liberationist views 
through the observation that, look, when we factory farm animals for food, we're, we cause enormous amounts of suffering. And it's really almost impossible to argue that we couldn't get the pleasures of cuisine uh, in alternative ways that wouldn't entail so much suffering. So that's how he gets to his animal liberationist views. Reagan comes from really what is the opposite philosophical tradition, one that puts uh, the idea of rights uh, at the center in the idea that there's certain things that you just can't do to rights bearers, no matter how much you can produce benefits for, for everyone else. And then Reagan basically argues that in assigning rights only to human beings, um, you know, we've essentially made a species hysteria because all the same grounds for assigning rights to humans apply to assigning rights to many animals as well. And then once you do that, if you sort of have the same normative theory, there's certain things you can't do to rights bearers, no matter how many benefits you could produce for others, then you essentially have a philosophical picture in which it's wrong, for example, to experiment on animals, even though you could produce great human benefits from doing so. So part of the power of these early writings in the 1970s and 1980s, and there are other figures as well, people like Mary Midgley, for example, who's not mentioned often enough in this, in, this, uh, in this context. But part of the power of these early writings is they essentially represent almost all of the dominant philosophical perspectives that from a f sort of theoretical uh, perspective disagree with each other, but yet they all come to the same conclusion with respect to our treatment of animals. And I think that's why philosophers, just as a little tribe, have tended to accept arguments about vegetarianism and so on um, in a much more thoroughgoing and general way than most other academics have. It's interesting, too, because I know you wrote um, and edited and compiled a book called Singer and His Critics, uh, which, which we would very much recommend. And, and at the start of the book, you dedicate it to all those who believe that philosophy is not just an academic exercise or a way of making a living, but also an instrument for improving the world and improving ourselves. And I think that's particularly striking with the question of animals, given how often all of us are interacting with them or, or the products made from them on a, on a daily basis. So in some ways, um, it, it seems like a very... Uh, poignant and personal field, even within philosophy, for, for both, both the people doing the philosophy and also any, you know, anyone reading that work or, or being exposed to it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, again, I think part of this goes back to my religious upbringing. I mean, I came from a family that didn't really have um, a tradition of education. Neither, neither of my parents, for example, finished high school. I mean, my father completed high school after he came back uh, from the army. But, uh, but they very much respected education, but it was really only associated with what the minister in the church had or what a teacher had. There was, you know, not this idea of sort of being a, kind of an academic or a pure intellectual. And so my road to education went through a religious tradition. And I think what never left me was really a commitment that my parents had, which was you know, the point of education is to, is to enable you to do something. It, it, it's not about, it's not a pointless act, activity. It's supposed to be good for something. And so, uh, so my attraction to philosophy then in a way was the sidelong move f from religion into a field that I thought was more empirically grounded, had more useful tools and instruments. And, you know, but the basic idea that this matters that, you know, you can clear away a lot of nonsense and you can make the world better by using these tools and instruments uh, is just an idea that was there for me from the beginning. And it's, it, you know, it was just part of my life. And you've written a lot about why we find it so difficult in the case, especially of climate change um, and now around animal ethics to translate our intellectual understanding of the harms that we're committing into action. So that's a meta theme in your work. And you have various thought experiments um, around why this might be the case that are kind of ingenious. And in one, you talk about, you give the case of a situation in which Jack is stealing Jill's bike. And there is a case in which our intellectual faculties, our legal tradition has no problem cognizing what's wrong there. 
there's something taken from the other agent and the source of the harm um, is clear and there's a short causal distance between the two of them. But of course, with climate change, it's as if Jack and a group of unacquainted people, quote, set in motion a chain of events that causes a large number of future people who will live in another part of the world from ever having bicycles. So so the causal um, distance is totally stretched out to such an extent that it's very difficult for us um, to act on on our beliefs. Well, part of the problem that we have with our self-image is that we think we're too important in all sorts of different ways. One way we think we're too important is because we think that whatever happens to people is the only thing that matters in the world. But then we also think that we should be able to sort of reason our way out of any conundrum that we have, uh, that we should be able to solve any problem that we produce, that if it wasn't for bad people or stupid people or uneducated people or whatever it is, we should be able to solve all of these problems. But I think a, a, a more realistic way of looking at this is that, you know, we're essentially one of the few remaining species of great apes. We are remarkably adaptable uh, for at least a short period of time from an evolutionary perspective. We have been remarkably successful, but we've transformed the planet and created societies that there's just no reason at all to think that we have the psychological abilities to really manage. And that's fundamentally the problem that we, that, that we face. I mean, just because we can build something, namely a world of 7.3 billion people, doesn't mean that we're able to sustain it or to manage it or to govern it effectively. What do you make of the argument, and Anthony Weston has written about this in his book, Mobilizing the Green Imagination, but what do you make of the point of view that given how radically we've impacted the world, um, our own world and that of other creatures, that we should take from, there's, there's on one level, there's an incredible pessimism that that can induce for obvious reasons. But on the other hand, he writes that what better evidence that we're already acting in radical ways and that we could see it as a potential cause for hope? Well, first of all, I do think that we need to get past the pessimism-optimism axis. And, uh, you know, I think the right way to be thinking about almost everything is on the realism delusional axis and we're way too often delusional in all in all sorts of ways and not and not realistic enough we are taking radical action in transforming the planet and some of that transformation has done remarkable things in terms of um, increasing human life expectancy for example um and building a world in which there are all kinds of things that exist that we value, that, you know, sort of nature without human intervention, you know, would not have produced a grand opera, for example. Um, so there's all kinds of things going on here. I mean, the, the, I mean this, this in a way does get sort of very theological, I think, I think very quickly. And at one level, um, the sort of dominant theology is is essentially one that sees us as these imaginative, creative creatures who have transformed the world in this way. And so what we need is more imagination, more creativity, more risk-taking, et cetera, et cetera. And we get that, you know, um, you know, from people, you know, ranging from the sort of Silicon Valley prophets um, to many philosophers. Um, I mean, my temperament, and it's kind of very hard, I think, to argue either way for this, but my temperament runs into the opposite direction. It's more like, whoa, buddy, we've really transformed this planet in an incredibly short period of time, and we need to slow down and try to figure out what's going on here. We need to lighten that footprint. We need to sort of see if what we've managed to create has a kind of sustainable nucleus 
to it. So um, the I guess one way of putting it is the imagination that I think we lack most of all is an imagination that's not focused on fixing things and advancing things and improving things and going, you know, essentially the frontier picture, going to new places, whether new places of the mind or new places of the globe. But we need an, a, an imagination that's sort of more of a Buddhist imagination, if you will, that's an imagination about how to live peacefully and tranquilly uh, and to sort of deal with the, you know, inevitable um, problems that are, in the end, I think, impossible for humans to solve, problems of mortality, problems of suffering, and so on, which will never really go away. How do you um, think about in your interactions with students, and, and, and we should say again, we mentioned in the introduction, but that you're really a visionary in this um, topic in, in academia and beyond in terms of creating and pioneering the animal studies department at NYU um, and now the Center for Environmental and Animal Protection. But I wonder with your students, how do you think about trying to shift their minds towards that new type of imagination that you talked about or, you know, of, Get them to shift, you know, on their own. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and in particular, what you're just saying reminds me of a really profound insight at the end of your Love in the Anthropocene book in which you quote the novelist philosopher Iris Murdoch saying, love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. And that, and, and as you say, you know, we think about climate change in terms of technology and economics and science and, and so forth, but that the that ultimately you say it's a the, 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 one of the greatest threats is that it gives us a narcissist playground in which it's only just us and our own projections and that love in the way that we know it now in the perhaps most profound way can't exist in in such a world that is is so narcissistic. So I wonder how, how do you how do you approach that with your students? So the first thing to say is that I is that I've always thought that teaching is the most important thing that I do and I've always thought that the core of philosophy really goes back to Socrates. It goes back to, to talking to people together um, in ways that are, in a broad sense, therapeutic, but in ways that also can sort of make progress in, 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 in how we live together. So, I mean, so the first thing to say is for me, teaching is where everything starts and it's really central. The second thing to say, uh, which I find you know, I found sort of surprising because, you know, there's a way in which we age, but, but, but we never feel the aging process in that way. And um, we don't see ourselves the way others come to see us. And so one thing I've learned, and, and that's been sort of interesting, and I find it honestly quite challenging, is, is what it means to teach students and how to try to help students have certain kinds of insights and to try to get them past some of the, um, the bromides that they were raised with and don't question is really different when I'm, you know, five years or 10 years older than them than when I'm the age that I am now. And I mean, so it's, I mean, you know, and, and, and it kind of goes back to just, if we all, whatever age we are, sort of go back and reflect on what teachers really affected us and so on. I mean, it's, it's really highly contingent. I mean, you can have the most, you know, you could have a confrontation with the Buddha. And if you were in the wrong place in time, uh, you wouldn't even notice, much less think it's silly. So there's this incredible work to be done to try to make yourself useful to students and there's also a kind of openness and attunement that students, you know, have to try to bring to this, to this relationship as well. So, you know, that's all by way of background and about how difficult and contingent and, and, you know, and kind of wonderful, you know, when people come together and manage to affect each other's lives in ways that are significant and, and important, often, often really surprising. There's no, there's no real formulas you know, for doing that. But, but having said all that, I mean, I, I think in terms of where I am now and the sort of students that I see now, um, they tend to come into two, in, in two flavors. So one flavor tends to be people who are highly committed and have already sort of figured out a, a lot of things and they have, and there's energy pointed in these amazing directions. 
And there, the task often tends to be um, to try to to try to work with them and to figure out how all of that energy and goodwill and benevolence can be sort of channeled in a direction that makes a life for them sustainable. So they don't just burn out in 18 months or in three years or find themselves pessimistic or cynical or lost or disillusioned. The, the second kind of student is the student who really comes in almost in, in, in many ways as sort of an extension of their parents and, uh, and kind of always feel their parents sort of looking over their shoulder and, you know, they, why are you studying economics? Because, you know, I have to study the name of something that, you know, is a, is a high paying job and so on. And, and there are a lot of the challenges to just try to help people see that, that it's their life. It's nobody else's life. And, in, you know, and in the end, it's all right to, to ask questions and, uh, and to think, and to think new thoughts. And um, so, you know, those are two different tasks that really often confront you in the same classroom. Hmm. It's interesting hearing you talk about Socrates because at least in the early dialogues, the, the arc of those conversations that he has with people, and they're not just colleagues or students, but anyone, like an enslaved person, etc. It's like they he would begin with received wisdom or some kind of assumption that most people held and then systematically dismantle it through question and answer till this moment of what the Greeks called aporia or an impasse. And listening to you talk, it reminded me of, I took a course here on um, animals in Indian religions in the religion department with Dr. Phyllis Granoff. And we spent the whole year reading Buddhist texts on animals, Jain texts on animals, Hindu texts. And then by the end of the course, we found ourselves, I mean, with the question that sort of had launched the course, which is what is an animal, which seems like a ridiculous question at first, but the deeper you get into the discourse on animals, the less clear it becomes. And so we were curious how you think about that, like what defines an animal? Right. So that is obviously a very profound question, and and it's one whose answer has released really changed through the ages. And it's also clear that there's no sort of settled contemporary definition. I mean, our president likes to talk about dogs a lot, fired like a dog, behaved like a dog, et cetera, et cetera. And this idea of distinguishing humans from animals is, is still an idea that's very deeply embedded in much of our discourse, for example, but then in other contexts, we see ourselves as continuous and so on. So, I mean, I guess one way that I would say that that I'm not very platonic, if you will, is I tend to see the look, the search for definitions and for essences as generally being a misguided search, that, that I see everything as being, in a way, pragmatic, as being contextual, and it's it's more a matter of sort of figuring out where we are how to mark a distinction from here and how to and how to go on from this place. I do want to make another comment though that's also related to to what you were saying about the course on on, on animals in Indian philosophy and it and also connects to what I was saying about students who who really have it figured out and they want to save the world, whether it's animals or the environment and so on. I mean, it's also really important for people to understand how, how that even if we're pointed in the right direction, how little we know what that means. Um, we really don't know. I mean, most of us are pretty clear about what environmental pollution, environmental destruction, all that kind of stuff is, but we're not very clear at all about what would count as, as sort of a good human relationship with the environment, what a sustainable world would look like. And in fact, people who can agree on all kinds of things that are bad would really disagree about sort of the positive vision. And the same thing I think is true about animals is that once we get past uh, torturing them in the ways that we do and using them for food and so on, I mean, what, it, I mean, so what exactly does that mean? I mean, does, you know, in terms of uh, whether animals are part, are part of human communities and human life. And I don't think we know the answer to that. In fact, it's very sobering to remember that in the 18th century, when the rights to uh, of women's suffrage were beginning to come 
to the fore and people were arguing for the rights of women. People thought that this was such an absurd idea. What, what does that mean? What, it, I mean what, what would it be like for women to have, can they sue their husbands? I mean, what an, an obviously absurd idea that there was a tract that was written by Thomas Tyler called On the Vindication of the Rights of Brutes. And, uh, and it was actually meant to be a parody. The idea was that it was as absurd to suppose that women have rights as it would be to suppose that animals have rights. We know that's absurd, you know, so obviously we must think that it's absurd to think that women have rights. So, you know, so what's important to recognize, I think, is that when we manage to shed some of what obscures our view, our prejudices, our biases, and we sort of get past speciesism and we get past all the things that are bad, it doesn't mean that we see the world clearly at that point. I mean, the world can is still just as confused and full of nonsense and so on. So it's an important role to have, I think, going back to teaching, to always be engaged in critical thinking, to be engaged in sort of probing more deeply, not because we're going to come out with what is an animal or what's the essence of this or that, but because we know we are just, uh, that nonsense is endemic to us and we're going to carry it with us in, in, you know, in all kinds of different forms. In fact, I guess there's one side of me that is in a way quite conservative in the sense that I think that people who feel that they have an incredibly positive vision of the world and they want to remake the world in that image uh, I, I, I often find to be to be quite chilling, actually. Mm. It's interesting, the example with women, it reminds me of some philosophers, many have brought up the example of rape as a way to understand rape law and the sordid history of rape law as traditionally, uh, if someone, if a woman was raped, it was wrong, not because she, not because there was a harm done to her, but because some, a man's property was damaged. And so, the analogy with the environment is that, like in the case of rape, there's this fiction that the environment is a resource that we own and that to harm it is only bad insofar as we're harming our property and our continued existence. And that in the, in the way that the previous legal framework blinded us to the subjectivity and autonomy of half the human race, the current framework around the environment blinds us to the agency of most of the planet's creatures and to thinking in a more healthy way about the flourishing of our habitat and other habitats. And so we were curious what you make of that line of argument. No, I think that's exactly right. I think, um, I mean, one of the papers that I've published fairly recently is a paper on animal agency. Uh, and the, what interested me in that subject is that even among people who are very strongly animal protectionists. And I'm thinking now more people in the philosophical world, but I think it also sort of goes over into the kind of the broader community. You know, we tend to think of animals as victims, you know, as sort of passive suffering creatures and so on. And what tends to get lost is the fact that they have an enormous amount of agency that different from ours in various ways, similar to ours in other ways that they express in all kinds of different ways. And sometimes, um, you know, they, they're willful. Sometimes they make messes of things and so on. And part of what it is to kind of live in a mutually respectful way is, you know, is to recognize the agency and not just see them as victims. I mean, this is an issue that's very, I think is very much alive when it comes to the way that we think about poverty and the way that we think about sort of international development issues and so on. Um, you know, the, I mean, so much of the discourse tends to be around whether the countries of the North, you know, were hideous aggressors and the people of the South are sort of hopeless victims, or whether, in fact, what some people would say is hideous aggression can be defended. And what, you know, in the view that tends to from, you know, from the perspective of the North to be sort of obscured is that, yes, there's, there's enormous global injustice and so on, but victims are not just victims. They're also agents as well. And there's a, there's, there's a lot of dynamism and there's a lot of activity that goes on there. And so in a way, the whole challenge of the world and part of in my point of view and part of what it is, I mean, sometimes I use the phrase epistemological modesty to, to, to trigger this. And part of what that's about is to 
sort of open your eyes and to see the life and the creativity and the vitality that's going on around you. It doesn't free you from any obligations, but it makes you not, your role isn't to be the savior of the world. Um, your role is to be a good citizen of the world. And that's a, that's a different thing. Hearing you say that reminds me um, of the poem, The Panther by Rilke, which is, as probably many people listening know, of the story of the agony of a panther imprisoned in a cage, which with what seems to be a thousand bars holding him in. And it kind of makes, it makes the point um, very beautifully that it's not just a physical suffering, but a powerful agent to which man has led to this uh, horrible, horrible state. And it reminded me too, um, thinking about the agency of the animals in that poem, of uh, one particular story in Love and the Anthropocene that you tell, which is a really, I think, brilliant way of poking at some of these issues of what our future with animals might look like and what that vision could mean. Um, And the one I'm thinking of is about a zoo and it's about a a blind date that's gone gone wrong. And uh, the zoo is in the future at a point where there are very few real wild animals left and there's only one real tiger left and uh, a lot of the other animals seem to be you know, genetically engineered or altered in different ways. And alas, anyway, the story is of the couple going to the zoo and, uh, and what happens when they go there. And at the time, the technologies have advanced such that they can translate some communication between animals to humans and they translate in particular a message from the final elephant on earth as there is sorriness instead of um, in English, you know, saying I dropped... I dropped the cup, you say, you know, it's more like the Spanish phrasing of the cup, it dropped from me. Um, And so the elephant's choice of saying there is sorriness really diverts, doesn't address blame or anything to that effect. And I wonder, thinking about that story and thinking about the agency of these animals, why when you were writing that story, was that the phrase that you chose for the elephant to say? That's a really, really challenging question uh, because everything in that book is the autonomous creation of an author who is neither me nor Bonnie. (laughs) But I think what really motivated that was really two thoughts. One thought was the one that we've been, that we've been talking about that, that part of our problem with the world is that we tend to have this, kind of active passive axis on which we on which we see everything and you know and i think from my point of view we never really get it right uh, until we can find another stance to take towards the world so i think that's part of what's going on but the other thing that's going on you know is the idea of animals as other nations you know because again when it comes to animals even the animals we call wild animals I mean, there is this idea that they don't really exist unless unless they're assimilated into human systems of various sorts. So even if you're talking about wild animals that aren't in zoos, you know, they've got to be banded. You know, they've 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 got to be labeled. They've got to be observed. They've got to be identified. They've they've got to be understood. And conceptually, when we sort of try to understand what's going on with these with these with these creatures we we sort of have to somehow do it in terms of human concepts and you know and the question in a way it goes back to this whole question about about animal communication um because so much of that discussion in the academic literature has been about whether any other animals besides humans have language language is what's important so the huge debates then about exactly how do you characterize language and is it really language that they have and of course what gets left out is well you know, these communication systems evolve to serve the purposes that organisms have in their environments. Whether it's language or not is not nearly as interesting as how a communication system that has evolved among social animals work in their community in the environments in which in which they live. So part of it then, in the case of the elephant, and is their sorriness, is... Um, is just an attempt to see, wow, you know, these really are other nations. They aren't just, you know, as we sometimes hear, gee, an adult chimp, you know, has an I, you know, may have an eye, you may be as smart as a four-year-old child. I mean, that's that's not that's not an interesting axis, really. You know, um, what's interesting is what it is like to 
to be that animal. And there's no reason to think that the way they see the world is, you know, some slimmed down version of how humans see the world. Hmm. It's interesting because it reminds me of what you were, of your response to the question of what is an animal. Is it, which sounded to me like you were reframing it as, well, wait, words are tools and what kind of work is this word doing? And thinking of other animals as nations, it's interesting because it's, I mean, it just occurs to me, it's like the term non-human, there's something ridiculous about that if you think about it in terms of essences. It's like saying, it, because it refers to such a, it refers to the vast majority of beings, like the term non-be would be kind of also <laughs> absurd. And with language, of course, the, there has been so much passion that humans bring to the question, who has language? And it's funny because etymologically, the word language I think it comes from the body. It's etymologically, if I'm not mistaken, it's around the tongue versus communication. Etymologically, it's a cognitive community. and But historically, there's been this premium placed on language as an expression of the mind and mere communication as the expression of the body, something that other animals can communicate, they can vocalize, but they don't have language. But we haven't really thought of communication as the sinews of social life. Right. And the other thing is, is when it comes to communication, let's just use that term in the most generic sense possible. We, we also have been fixated on something like propositional communication. Um, that is the idea that what language or communication system is supposed to do is to provide a window into the mind. And if you think about how we use language, for example, we use language a lot to push people around and to structure social relationships and to just do all kinds of things with, uh, including lie, by the way, and mislead and so on. And so, you know, the fraction of our utterances that are even sort of intended to make ourselves transparent, whatever even that means to another person, uh, is, you know, is, is, is actually not most of what we do with language. But yet that becomes, you know, the, the sort of centerpiece of how we think about, about language or a communication system. And so then if animals have language or whatever, then the question becomes really sort of about the transfer of propositional knowledge from, from one creature to another you know, rather than all the other things that a communication system is about. Yeah. And that irony reminds me of um, a quote. And it's a quote that I came across first in your email signature, which is from um, Lewis Hyde, which is that irony has only emergency use carried over time. It is the voice of the trapped who have come to enjoy their cage. And I wonder, as you think about, you know, the many ironies of of how we use language to divide ourselves from other animals and how we think about it and so forth. Does that quote relate to that topic for you? And and what about that quote struck you as particularly significant and important in how you think about these topics? So I think we're living in a time, uh, this goes back to questions of agency, and we're living in a time which is a vast amount of dissatisfaction in all sorts of directions about all sorts of things. And at the same time, I think most people feel remarkably disempowered about how to, how to bring about real change. And this is not something that's just true, you know, of on one side of a political spectrum uh, or, or another side of a political spectrum. I think it's, pretty, it's a pretty general feature of the, of, of the Anthropocene. So what is the response to that? Well, one response to that, I think, has been irony. So... If you kind of knowingly wink that you understand that the job you do is basically to be a cog in a kind of world-destroying, soul-sucking machine, then somehow there's some, I, what does one even call it, sort of moral, let's just say positive moral valence. You've done what you can do by indicating the irony of this, right? And so the fact that you see no way out of this and, you know, and, and you wouldn't maybe even make the trade-offs if you did see a way out of it, somehow all becomes, you know, invisible or excusable or forgettable in some way. So irony, I think, has tended to become 
a, a, you know, kind of weirdly, um, a kind of common quote, moral response to a sense, to a widespread sense of a loss of, of power and agency. In that sense, I think irony then mostly be, becomes, becomes an enemy of real agency and an enemy of real change. And so that's one of the things that we really sort of need to break through. That, you know, and, and again, like with anything, you have to understand why it's attractive and what its role and what its purpose can be. And we can all think of, of, of a literature in particular where irony has been hugely important for holding something up and getting people to see the hypocrisy or whatever that's involved. But irony as a way of life is not an emancipatory way of life. Hmm. That's interesting, right? So it's, it sounds like you're seeing it as a way of disavowing our own agency. Meanwhile, as you write in, you and Bonnie write in Love and the Anthropocene, it's coming at a time when we're losing, you quote, we're losing nature as a fully independent partner and therefore losing our best teacher for learning that something other than us, ourselves is real. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's sobering. I mean, there's a way in which irony, I think, is, is closely connected to narcissism because, because the ironist is mainly interested uh, in, in the reflection of his or her own attitudes back onto oneself you know, rather than standing in a, in a real relationship. I mean, sincerity, real sincerity involves real, real connection to others. You've spoken about the fact that we're increasingly willing to attribute agency to animals, um, thanks to the scientific literature, even as we think of ourselves as cogs. Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. So, so there's two things happening with animal agency. So one thing that's happening is that we actually don't attribute as much agency to animals as I think we should. And you find this particularly among the philosophers who, the animal-friendly philosophers who will say, well, animals, I mean, part of it comes from this place where animals shouldn't be held responsible for doing bad things because they're not moral agents as we are and so on. And, and people will use phrases like, agency in a sense or um, agency in a way and things like that. So I think we still tend to really withhold thinking of them as full agents. And of course, I want to go further. I think and there's a lot of nature that's just full out agential in the same sense in, we're, in which we're agential. But at the same time, attributing at least some kind of agency becomes irresistible you know, if you if you if you go back, for example, to phrases in our twentieth century poetic tradition where people talk about things are in control, for example. I mean, just even that phrase suggests that there's a you know, that as our agency has sort of dripped away, the agency of the of of, of, of the external of the world around us sort of grows in compensation. So so, so it is interesting. I think on the one hand, it gets harder and harder to deny agency to non-human things. Look at robots, look at operating systems, look at machines. But at the same time, there's also a huge amount of resistance, I think, still, especially to attributing agency to non-human animals. And it's just curious to me now, going back to your distinction between Singer's view and Reagan's view with regard to animal rights, do you, where do you see yourself on that continuum now, thinking of wrongs to them in an utilitarian sense versus in what philosophers call a deontological sense, focusing on them as subjects? And how do you see that in relation to agent, the agency of nature? So I see myself as broadly in the utilitarian or consequentialist tradition. So if there's two sides to the street, the sort of Reagan or Singer side of the street, I'm on the Singer side of the street. But but my views about what it means to make the world better, my value theory, if you will, is much richer and more pluralistic and contextual than the value theory that someone like Singer has following people like Bentham, which tended to see value as being identical with pleasure or with the satisfaction of preferences. I think value is much more diverse than that, um, and, 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 and often different kinds of good standing complex relations with, with each other. Mm. 
Well, to close, thinking about valuable things, um, we like to ask each of our guests for books that have two or three books that have influenced them in profound ways for how they think about animals. I'm sure there are many that, for you, but are there a couple that come to mind that you would recommend to us and to listeners? Yes. I mean, um, so I want to preface this by saying I had I had no warning about this question. And so, <laughs> and so, and so it isn't as though I've I'm about to make these recommendations having contemplated the vast scope of reading that I've done over a lifetime and that these are the three things that I would recommend. Instead, what I'm going to suggest are the things that are very much in the front of my mind at this particular moment. So it's perfect. So, so take it as a report from the front. So one is the just fantastic book by the Israeli historian Harari called Sapiens which is hardly a secret at this point. I think the book is a, is a bestseller, but it's really one of, those, one of those rare books that I think even those of us who do a lot of writing for a living would be just very, very proud to write. So that's right there on my list at the moment. A second book, which is a really weirder book, and it's out of print, but it's, I, I, I think it's, it must be out of print, but it's one that especially for people who are interested in animals, really to read, to try to track down and read, is a book by Henry Salt called Animals' Rights in Relation to Moral Progress. And it was published in the 19th century. Henry Salt was um, the person who introduced Thoreau's theories of nonviolence um, to Gandhi when Gandhi was a student in England. Salt was one of those people who was right about almost everything in the late 19th century and was so disgusted by his by his fellow humans that the title of his autobiography was 70 Years Among Savages. Um, <laughs> and uh, but this book contains, <laughs> you know, just sort of everything you you, you would want about um, about arguments, you know, with respect to animals in particular. Um, then I guess I would say when it, when it comes to the environment in particular, more, more broadly, while it's very hard to find, uh, a sort of single essay or text that sort of leaps out as the one or the, the thing that's classic or the one that everyone should read. I really think that everyone who cares about nature should read some John Muir somewhere. And uh, a lot of his writing is very place-specific, kind of very natural history. But but when you read Muir, you first of all, you get the agency of nature, and you also are reminded in a world in which, which is increasingly hostile to these ideas why protecting nature for its own sake is worth doing. Well, Dr. Jamison, thank you so much for joining us and for, for your important work and for also being just such a, a generous spirit and thinker in this field. Well, thank you. I, 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 want, I want to say that not only have the questions been very good, but it's always an honor to talk to people who have read one's work so carefully and closely. So thank you. Thank you, too, to our great producer, Ryan McAvoy, and to the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Dr. Jameson and his work. Thanks for listening.